Hello and welcome everyone to the Manufacturer's latest podcast. I'm Stuart Biddle, Client Delivery Director here at Manufacturer and in this episode we'll be exploring some practical steps you can take to reduce your impact on the environment and why it makes good business sense to have a sustainability strategy. My guests are Olivia Whitlam, who is Head of Sustainability at Siemens, and John Walsh, who provides strategic guidance to businesses in his role at E.ON. Firstly, John, could you just tell us a little bit about your role and your view of the landscape on this topic? Thank you very much, Stuart. Uh, Pleasure to be here. Um, I just wanted to give you a brief introduction um, to me and to E.ON, really to give a bit of context of of my perspective on today's discussion. So um, I'm John Walsh. I've been with E.ON just over 25 years now, so uh, quite a long time. And the last half of that period has been in the renewable arena, um, looking predominantly at large scale projects with large strategic corporate manufacturing customers, uh, their challenges and looking at the challenges around sustainability and energy. So uh, that gives you a feel for where I'll be coming from and my focus. I'll be looking at this area through an energy lens uh, with a view to links to uh, sustainability and net, net zero carbon, etc. Um, it struck me that it's quite interesting topical as well, the importance of the area we're looking at today around sustainability and that's linked to net zero is um, the president-elect in the US, President, well, president-elect Biden, uh, one of the first things he's going to reverse as soon as he gets into office is the uh, Paris Agreement and, and the US to get back into that. So that really underlines how, on a global scale, how important this whole area is for us. And um, really that transition to a low carbon economy. And if we look at the COVID lockdown, the impact it has on the economy, it really is a reset chance for us here in the UK to, to start that low transition to low carbon. And uh, as I say, from my perspective, what we're moving towards is a new energy world. And there's a phrase here, manufacturing 4.0, which refers to um, the industrial revolution of the fourth generation, if you like, that we've seen. So that's a phrase really, uh, what it refers to is more the also known as industrial 4.0, and that's the emphasis on digital technology or interconnectivity, the internet of things, and a facts of interest really that's spotted in a recent article in The Economist is uh, the acceptance now that the, the most precious resource in the world is that of data. So much more than gold and oil. So it just gives us a feel for the digitization of, of our planet now at the moment, interconnectivity of the world and how that could lead to hopefully an interesting discussion uh, today. But what we wanted to do is really highlight, uh, well, five headings really of, of how we, sustainability can help in this new energy world. So sustainability will support the future direction of manufacturing industry. Profitability is another area of opportunity. Obviously, there's obvious reasons for that. But in terms of process improvements, energy and carbon price mitigation techniques, and along with that, maybe moving towards the intangible a little bit, you've got your reputational improvements that we can bring in this new energy space. 
So there's lots of opportunity to, to in, improve um, things through customers' buyer behaviors in this in these new economy. And then around investment and innovation, uh, it's clear now that green investment is growing and there'll be further opportunities for, for CapEx demands and really being aware of that and trying to make the best of those opportunities. And the final point I raise here is around security and resilience. It's, it's reduced resilience, uh, reliance on the wider energy grid. If you can generate your own energy solutions on, on site, gives you that flexibility. So whatever the technology and the way prices move, it gives you that security of supply. And the final point I'd like to make, just by way of introduction, is the fact, and again, this is not based on any specific statistic. This is more an illustrative view uh, from my perspective on where we are now. If we look at the classic iceberg where we've got the majority of it under the water, we can see maybe a performance of manufacturing where we are today. And indeed, it just, just gives you a feel for the art of the possible in terms of potential by utilizing smart technologies. And there's several stages one can go through to, to, to really acknowledge and, and, and make the most of those opportunities. And we'll probably discuss that with Olivia, Stuart and myself a little bit later. And we welcome any questions about those stages. Uh, in my mind, uh, it's quite sequential and different manufacturers may need assistance with different areas of these uh, of these steps, they may have the abilities in-house or maybe need to uh, outsource or, or, or be able to insource for, for some of those. So to give you a feel, what we're talking about is understanding your baseline of where you're at and setting targets against that and being able to identify the benefits of, of doing this. And that's the sort of strategic approach to it. And that will lead you to choosing the right projects uh, uh, which in turn means finding the capex for those schemes, maybe introducing the right partners during that process, and then proving the case. And again, that becomes a circular motion. So getting back to your baseline, understanding where you are, setting a new target, and really moving that transition through to where you want you where you aspire to be as a company, as a manufacturing company. Hopefully, that gives you a feel for my perspective on on this area. And hopefully that'll give us a feel for what we can talk about in this session. Thanks, John. Olivia, please could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your passion for sustainability? Um, so very quickly, I look after sustainability for the Siemens PLC business um, in the UK. And I have to admit, it's a bit of a passion project kind of a job. I'm an environmental scientist by education. Um, I went a little bit via Olympic rowing and back into the kind of sphere of environment, sustainability and everything like that. And I have to say what a time to have joined it. I mean, I've been working in kind of manufacturing industries with Siemens for the last eight years. And the amount that we're now seeing, not just from uh, the Paris Agreement and, you know, America in and out and in and out, but around ESG and investors um, and the importance that's now being placed on that about all the kind of societal purpose that business should have and that kind of wake up call with the SDGs, so UN Sustainable Development Goals, around how much of a contribution we can have and the pace that we can kind of push with that contribution. We're often quicker than governments to be able to act. And I think that's a really 
magnificent thing. Um, and it's also a massive business opportunity. I mean, I think John and I were discussing earlier, uh, just before this call, about how so similar our businesses are. We, we work together, we're each other's customers, but we're both trying to actively do something to help decarbonize the planet because it's such a massive task and it's such a critical one. Uh, back when I was doing my degree many years ago now, it was already something that was on the horizon scientists were talking about, but now it's our day-to-day -day reality. We're seeing the effects of climate change and, you know, for our own sakes, it's time to really do something about it. Should we get into the Q&A and get stuck into some of the excellent questions you sent through? Absolutely. Thank you, uh, John no and Olivia, for your uh, your intros. Um, so first one, I think this, this, this is a good sort of scene setting question for us. What is a roadmap to sustainability? John, can I come to you first, please? Yes, yeah, sure. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a really good question and one that often should be the start of the conversation. I'm often speaking to customers who have aspirations and they can often get ahead of themselves and say, I, I want a solar panel or I want a CHP. And when the, it's really about asking questions in the first instance, what is it you're trying to achieve? And then there's a series of steps and information paths to go down, which will lead you to the answer if you do it in a systematic way. So in terms of a, a, a roadmap to sustainability, my definition really is that it's a strategic plan to help you to man, manage the transition and the risks through that transition and identify future costs well in advance. And there's probably two or three steps to that. And one is clear identification and engagement with all your stakeholders. So this includes customers, contractors, suppliers and staff, you know, really, really cradle to grave stuff and integrate it so it becomes BAU, your processes, and the commercial and brand value potential and upside of that are, are, are pretty obvious. So also, another step aligned with that is articulating the known unknowns, if you like. It's a phrase we use quite often, but it's a really worthy process and it helps you to tackle some more of the technical issues uh, that linked to other areas that we talked about, like net zero and, and, and 4.0. And the final point is probably around the fact that what you want to look at is your long-term trajectory. You're not going to achieve everything by tomorrow or even next year. We've got to be realistic. Some of the net zero goals, for example, are linked to 2030, 2035, 2050 even. So, you, you know, we've, we've got a period of time to achieve this. And, and all I'd finish around this is that the fact that if you do act quickly, if you're able to act quickly in this area, that will maximise the value to your business. And it enables investments to be made over a longer period. And then you can avoid costly remediation work later on. So it's better to plan for these and, and, and get the benefits over a period rather than having to invest in some sort of a emergency type situation. Brilliant. Thank you, John. Olivia? Um, I'd build on that. I think everything that John said is absolutely correct, but it relies pretty much on a lot of data. And I think we mentioned, you know, Industry 4.0 is coming and it's here, really. And it's a really sort of perfect storm of opportunity. We can handle the kind of volumes of data now that we need to understand what those correct decisions could be to, you know, model, to, to make those strategic decisions as to what we want to do now and what we want to put off for five years. And I mean, we've just been going through this process internally again. Uh, we're 
committed to be carbon neutral by 2030. And obviously, you know, you get five years in, and you go, right, we, we need to take a look again. And I mean, it's data coming out of our ears. And without some of the digital tools that are now available, you couldn't do it. So I think it's really important to understand that kind of measurement and those measured steady decisions as you go, because if you don't, and you just kind of make assumptions, you could really head off down the wrong path because it's not always what's in the media that's the right thing to do. As John says, a, a solar panel is not necessarily the solution. That's a, an interesting phrase just to add to that, Olivia, is that gling. You know, some, some people, they, they want this green bling is a, is a phrase to be seen to be doing the right thing. And that may be a, a, a legitimate objective for, for some customers, but really we need to scratch the surface and use experts such as Olivia and hopefully uh, from, from our team as well, where we can advise and, and really find the right solution, a bespoke solution that, that fits the customer's objectives. Yeah, it's a really good phrase. Bespoke's also massively something we see, like even per site within Siemens. So we have a number of sites in the UK. We can't use the same technology on every site and think it will help us vigil and it's a suite of solutions applied differently where appropriate i think that's quite different from the past and it makes it a little bit harder to kind of just do a big oh yes we'll just decarbonize by doing these three things and it'll all be perfect it's a little bit trickier than that brilliant thank you um You've mentioned a couple of times now net zero, we're talking about sustainable manufacturing, we've mentioned industry 4.0. Um, Olivia, are these terms that are independent of one, one another or are they all kind of wrapped up in, in this together? Um, I think they interact. So obviously net zero and carbon neutral, kind of same thing, different words for it. Um, whereas Obviously, everybody in this call knows that manufacturing 4.0 is its own thing entirely, but it is an opportunity for net zero. Um, and like I say, I think without that kind of capability of knowing what each machine in your processing line is doing and how much energy it's consuming and having all the kind of controls, um, uh, say like lights, in your building be sensor operated but also able to monitor footfall and really understanding where your energy needs to be used rather than where it's currently used and that's essential to decarbonize and we've got to be more efficient with the energy we have if you look at the government modeling for how much electricity we're going to need to suit because obviously we're switching gradually to ev cars and things like that that massively increases how much electricity the uk is going to have to generate to support a kind of the future um, so there's also just that pure incentive of how energy efficient we can get as well as how decarbonized and they go hand in hand with that industry 4.0 and that's a key phrase um Olivia touched upon there the, the electrification so that's a macro uh, impact that's happening not just across the uk but across the world where there's a move away from other fossil fuels towards electric uh, not just in transport as general, but also in heating. We're looking at process heat now moving towards heat pumps rather than, than burning gas traditionally. So, so the, if we look at these mega trends that are, that are affecting uh, at very high level, uh, you, you're quite right. Electrification is, is, is a big issue, and that where it over, overlaps. But I was looking. There was a there was a, a colleague of mine who put a slide together. It's quite interesting, and there were some specific areas for. 4.0 and for net zero, and then an area, if you like, a circle where they both cross. 
I'll just share some of those points. So if we look at digitization and, 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 and 4.0, then you've got digital red readiness, robotics, machinery. I'm just reading some of these now, the increased data vis visibility. And then on the other side with net zero, we've got a net zero strategy, emissions, visualization, new technology across infrastructure and emissions reductions. And then what links them both are probably some common areas around that where we're finding investments to, to try and increase performance and return on investments. So that's where the, the, the overlap these, these projects. And if the, the real dream ticket is to try and achieve both with the same investment, being a little bit smarter about how we achieve that, and also security for, for product data and energy usage, and for energy usage, the income and profit, it's all interrelated. Uh, our energy managers who is really passionate about driving savings, that's just the same as driving carbon and driving energy saving. The best kilowatt is one that you don't use. Uh, you know, avoidance is, is, is the ultimate uh, opportunity. But in lieu of that, let's find out some smarter ways where we can do it. Uh, a bit like uh, Olivia mentioned about replacing lighting. You know, it's a really transactional, uh, good example of something you can do that, that makes a tangible difference. Yeah, I might stretch the thinking a little bit there, John. I think the best kilowatt that we have is one that someone else pays you for generating. Wow. And I think, you know, we've got all that opportunity now with some of the technologies available to us. Yeah, yeah. Just no, throwing down that gauntlet. You're quite right. It's a phrase I've used previously where we want our customers now to be prosumers, not consumers. So it, it, we've got it nailed on there. And, and what this brings us to is to the new world where we've got the technology with the smart meter rollout that's happening on a residential basis, uh, when we get solar panels to be able to export onto the grid, have the capability so that we can manage the peaks and troughs. And that's really, as, as we, these mega trends are gonna affect demand, we can actually satisfy that by the, the new world where we've got, instead of these traditional large scale power stations, we've got on-site generation across uh, customers' portfolios, you know, across a number of Siemens sites or Eon sites where we can generate, and the cumulative effect of those are is just the same as having a large-scale power station, only it's much more efficient. Thank you, um, Olivia. Question of, of that's coming for you here. Um, any advice on where to look for the quick and easy? Um, I think <laughs> wins. Um, well, we've already mentioned leds they are a genuinely quick win um and kind of a bit of a no-brainer at the moment uh, in terms of payback periods and things like that um from experience ourselves it tends to be the best way to do it is around baseload reviews which are really unglamorous and kind of old-fashioned in some ways but if you christmas is coming you know nobody's in your manufacturing plant it's shut down for a few days what's your actual baseload you're pulling has you know have all the light switches been switched off um we had a great one recently where we discovered one of our canteen lights has not been switched off for two years by doing a baseload review and we we're just like that's ridiculous that's just somebody switching off a light switch so you then get into the conversation should that be on a sensor so that you know we don't have to switch it off and we don't have this problem but i know it doesn't sound like much it's one light but over two years that's that's a decent amount of power and if you've got you know a few lights around the place it starts to add up or a machine that's on overnight or didn't need to be on during a certain shift or you know sometimes it's the really basic stuff and actually that's the best place to start and 
take those kind of baby steps. And if you can take those baby steps and you can, you know, really demonstrate some value, it's going to win over the doubters, isn't it? You know, people are going to start to get on board with um, your initiatives. Yeah. And to be honest, I have to say, I don't think within our company now I've got that many doubters to deal with. Everybody, A, it's a cost saving thing to do it well. um, And B, everybody's aware of the urgency of the situation. And I think the kind of announcements the UK government's been making over the past few weeks about their kind of ambitions um, around net zero really kind of drive home the point it's now or never. So I would say it's about just as much our confidence as people who have to kind of decarbonise um, as necessarily convincing people we should. Sure. And we've touched on a few points here that, um, that link into this next question. And the, the question is, do we really need smart buildings to be sustainable? Um, we, we've, we've talked about a few bits and pieces there. John, can I come to you for some examples there? Sure, yeah, no, I think this is another area that really overlaps in, in my mind in terms of the smart environment that, that enables manufacturing to make these step, step changes. Um, so smart buildings, for me, a key driver is, is being able to add smart features to any building so that they can be actively monitored and corrected. And this goes back to Olivia's point, it's, it's actually the base load analysis, the information being able to do that. So it's it's not very sexy. It's not going to put a solar panel on top of the roof or some EV charging points outside the boardroom or, you know, those sort of visual impacts. However, it can often be the most sensible way. And when we talk about starting this journey, what we really need to do before you look at investing in some step changes for some on-site generation is to get your business as efficient as you can in the first instance. So once you've enabled your, your building to do that, uh, what you can do then is enable your, your, once you've been able to monitor and closely understand that data, then you can help the building to reduce its energy demand in line with your net zero and help the balance the grid demands that we talked about. Really, in a nutshell, what we need to do is get our buildings, you need to become more precise and less wasteful. And that's across the piece. And if we do that uh, as a nation, then we're in a much smarter uh, environment and position to move forward into the next steps. Uh, so smart buildings, if you get them right, what they can do is also improve the quality and comfort of a building. And this is where we move into the next level of, of, of requirements. So once you get past trying to reduce it, it's about improving the environment one's in and improving tenant or customer or colleague engagement. Um, in terms of getting people to the party and occupier well-being is a phrase that's often often used. But along along with that, smart buildings can actually extend the life of plant and equipment in a pra- very practical sense, uh, and which saves cost and carbon. And they also support when you're targeting capex for investment, so you can actually improve and show where and size the size of the size of the investment or capital kit into the right element so that you're not wasting any any money in the longer or shorter term. Yeah, can I just add a couple of points to that? Just a bit of learning that I think might be helpful to share. We obviously do smart buildings kit, but our own buildings have it in. Um, And it's really critical that that's always kind of factored in to be kept up to date, serviced, um, you know, the way you, you would a car. And it's amazing how often that slips 
um, and then suddenly you have a building management system that doesn't really work that effectively or you install a building management system that doesn't have the flexibility to meet your future need. So, you know, where you've got a big footprint in a building, you need to be able to move your processing line around and change things and, you know, adapt depending on, you know, what you're deciding to manufacture, what your market looks like. And to be able to zone with a kind of smart building is also really critical. And I think that flexibility for the future always needs to be kind of kept in mind. Yeah, that, that's that point I meant to make when I, when I heard you mention it earlier, Olivia, in, in terms of our energy efficiency business that focuses on that. And, and that is a common occurrence. People will make a step change, reduce it. And then over time, we call it energy slippage, sort of whether, you know, sensors are not replaced or, or staff uh, who have been trained move on to another place. And over time, you get energy creep coming back. And it's, it's bad technique. Our favourite is we like to move walls, like really random walls in buildings get moved around and suddenly a whole floor doesn't quite work the way it should. It's really helpful. Yeah, yeah. And you can have the best kit in the world, but if it's not utilised properly, and it might only be a couple of pounds to replace, a, as I say, a sensor. Otherwise, you could have heating and cooling blowing against each other and just wasting a... And if you replicate that over a portfolio of... Of sites across the uh, you know the size of Siemens or Eon even you know we have heard of certain things like that happening in the past I couldn't divulge but um, you know it, it it does soon mount up so it's just about good management really. I think that leads nicely into the next question that I've got here for you. Um, so the question is, I want to reduce my energy consumption. How can I go about managing and implementing the tracking, recording, and control? Um, and you've touched on a couple of points that I think are relevant, but anything yeah, else you'd like to add? Is it all right if I start with this one, Olivia? Yeah, I was going to say that's your bread and butter, John. Okay. Go for it. Thank you. Um, so for me, an observation is manufacturing environments are often data rich. You know, there's data everywhere, but in many cases, information poor. And what we mean by that is that the packages are not in there. So they're all in different formats and separated around the business but we do have packages now that can organize all of the data in one place and present what we call a universal truth because otherwise uh, you're not getting the right picture and it can be what can happen is if you're coming from a sustainable perspective a bit like Olivia here is she might be fine if she was in a manufacturing environment often the process line is king and anything that stops that is is is, is thrown out of the water straight away so it's enabling an environment where all the data can be utilized and we get a universal truth across the piece rather than different perspectives measuring things for for different benefits and we we have a uh, a solution that links around it's called optimum manufacturing ai and that's artificial intelligence and if there's interest we can talk about that maybe a little bit later but the point is and it's really around the steps I talked about earlier, baseline, understanding where you are, setting targets and identifying the benefits you can achieve for that. And as we've said before, if you can't measure it, you can't, you can't prove that it's working and you're never going to get uh, a bit Olivia and I and my customers. What we need is board approval. And we, if we can produce an ROI that, that shows definitive payback periods and benefits in terms of intangibles, uh, or, or tangible, uh, so so much the better. 
yeah while we talk about that measurement piece as well I'm aware that you know like from our perspective we look at sustainability including kind of our scope three emissions nowadays so what's going on in our supply chain and what we're delivering with our customer is just as important as our own emissions and sometimes thinking that about that wider piece can give you clarity on what you need to do internally on those scope one and two so your own kind of fuel and electricity consumption and I think you know, it's important to not to lose sight the, the fact that your footprint could be huge in your supply chain. And actually, that's where the problem is and where you can make your biggest impact. So I, I feel like we've been quite mean about solar panels so far. Um, but, you know, part of that is those kind of considerations as well. Am I, as a sustainability manager, better to be putting solar panels on the roof and tackling, you know, half a kiloton of carbon in our primary emissions or should I be looking at our suppliers and kind of saying well how could we work together to make sure everybody has LEDs and saving you know 10 kilotons and there's a little bit of a kind of put the effort where it can have the maximum impact argument here as well and again yeah. data 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 yeah I think uh, if it's okay could you a little bit segue there around embedded carbon and that impact and I think that that's the point I took from, from what you've said there is really understanding, you know, the answer is not always to build a new cutting edge manufacturing environment because we need to associate all the embedded carbon. And, and, and as a term, what that means is everything from all the constituent parts that are, are maybe all the trouble included with bringing that concrete to site, all the concrete itself. And often how we found it's, it's becoming more and more of a larger percentage of the total carbon impact on buildings. And that's because of a couple of factors. One being, uh, notwithstanding, that the electricity grid is decarbonising. As we know, there's been an increase in solar technology, renewables in the UK, wind. And what that's done is enabled the, the power consumption part of a customer's carbon being a smaller and smaller percentage. And this has brought embedded carbon much more to the fore. So, so really it's about having that mindset. So rather than just ignoring it, looking at green refurbishments, rather than which will utilize and, and manage some of the existing carbon that's already there or prolonging the life of it, rather than spreading it out. I think there was a statistic and it's saying yeah, let me, recent estimates suggest that embodied carbon equates to around 75% of lifetime emissions. So once you get your head around that, you can realise that, as you've said, it's, it's a very important aspect to consider. Yeah, we talk a lot about carbon neutrality in products as well at the moment. And it's quite interesting when you look at different products we manufacture, say, um, like a train, it, its carbon impact is during its life use. It's not actually during its manufacture. So that then governs how you design the train to make sure it's as lightweight as possible, because then you're having the maximum carbon impact. Yeah. And, you know, a real life example of that going the other way to the customer rather than just, you know, in your supply chain. Yeah, and that's exactly true. Another example, I'm just looking at a tender with a, a, a key customer in, in, in high profile customer in central London, and it's a 15 year contract to manage their energy centre, to help them decarbonise. And they're currently burning gas uh, under CHP, which is quite efficient, but they're still burning fossil fuels. And as part of that process, they want to achieve carbon neutrality by 2030. But the answer is not to rip everything out on day one. 
because of the embedded mm. carbon cost associated with that. So it's running that down over its lifetime and trying to find that balance. So there's a lot of yeah. Um, yeah. cost and spreadsheet analysis going on now to try and find that tipping point and the right point to invest and divest. And my point here is that it's, it's quite complex. And if you are a manufacturing customer or, or a manufacturing business, your expertise is typically around manufacturing. And when it comes to energy and an analysis, energy partners like Siemens and Neon may be able to assist with these sorts of uh, contemplations. Stuart, have any other questions come in? I've got some, I've got some questions here around financing. So, um, so first one here is who is going to fund the necessary equipment upgrades, the motors, the drives, the fleets, et cetera? Um, who would like to pick that one up first? Shall I start and then we can yes, hand over yes. to John, who probably has kind of quite a bit of this embedded in what yeah. Eon do with their customers as well. We, I mean, we look at this um, automatically. It's, it's all part of the kind of work we do is, well, what what is that initial cost versus, you know, what's the reduction and trying to balance both. Um, I have to say that a lot of the decarbonisation technologies have got to the point now where you can cover that capex in a payback period. Um, so you're not necessarily going to be out of pocket because you want to do these things. It will just change the way you kind of build in the future. And we've got a couple of live projects at the moment on our own estate where actually it's pretty much balancing to zero. Um, we're not having to capex outlay. We're getting a decarbonized solution for something and it's not costing us any more than the current gas bill because gas heating is a real big one. It's a big one for the UK. It's been so reliant on North Sea gas and, you know, the whole heating infrastructure is built around that network. So trying to find solutions for that is tricky, but it is possible to get the books to kind of balance on it without it being a big outlay. Because I know we're not any of us really in the kind of environment where we're going, oh, the economy is great. Yay, let's crack on. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be making these changes now and there are ways around it. and actually finance is really helpful you know the kind the kind of financing you can do now is so varied as long as you've got that asset you can finance it or you can go out to a company that will take that risk and they will embed all those maintenance kind of costs as well that we were talking about if you let the maintenance side of it go it doesn't quite work um you know and take that all as a bundle of and you just pay it through utility bill. And it kind of, in some ways, couldn't be simpler. The trick is choosing the right technology at the start. Thank you. John, uh, any examples? Yeah, yeah. E excellent points from Olivia. And I really echo what she's saying about why we find where we are. And it's historically about that. You know, the UK as an island, we had a big pot of North Sea gas there, which has meant that our gas price compared to I work for a European country company, so I'm, I'm often speaking to my colleagues in Germany, Sweden, Italy, and, and they can't understand all the main differences. Our gas price is so low in comparison. So that means when we're looking to move to electrification for carbon benefits, potentially we have to make them super efficient. Crudely, we could say gas is maybe a third of the price of electricity, maybe a quarter, depending on how you procure. So, so therefore, you need to be COP coefficient of performance needs to be four, maybe five, to ensure that the, the economics of the scheme will work. So that's a, a very valid point that Olivia raises there about why the UK is probably unique and maybe a, 
bit behind some of our European colleagues for, for good reasons, and there's nothing wrong with that. But what we've done is uh, uh, kind of speak for my experience uh, uh, within the Eon business is we've enabled, um, we've looked at innovative financial solutions just to fund projects, just to get that activity moving. It wasn't our priority when we, you know, we are an energy utility company who, who operate and own assets. That's our core being and raison d'etre, if you like. Um, really, we, we, we've looked at um, raising capex for schemes as a byproduct, just to try and get these movement and throughput. And that's really helped and that's been a benefit. And, and rather than just a, a financial position, really the, how it's helped me is that as a business, we've tried to mature move towards um, an energy partnership with our customers, with manufacturers. And the difference being there is when we do invest some capital in this scheme, we've got some skin in the game. We're not just going to walk away and, and leave it. It's in our interest or to, to make our return, we've got to ensure that that asset operates, maintains and, and keeps moving, keeps generating energy and the savings that we say. And that works pretty well with our customers. And it also means that, you know, we're going to put the right kit in, we're going to size it correctly because we're driving that solution as well. So a true partnership means both parties are committed to the scheme or project and they both win-win scenario. And that's what we, we want to work towards. So it really depends where you're looking. As Olivia said, if it's some low-scale investment around the plant room, some, some basic energy profiling stuff, that's the return on investment is very good these days. As I say, shouldn't need a, a big capital investment. If we move along, if you're looking a couple of years into the make that step change and you require some million pound investments, maybe multi-million pound investments for some on-site generation kits, that's where we could look at some innovative financial solutions. And um, just as an example, working with the commercial real estate market now, one of the other hats I wear, and we're looking at how we can utilize that to increase their asset value and the yield on their properties. So it's understanding, capturing the value from the schemes and trying to put it in the right language for our customers, understanding how they want to realize that value. Because Olivia and I can assure you the technologies work. We both uh, uh, can quite agnostic. We can, we can find the right horse for the right course, if you like, and bring that to the scheme. But it's just ensuring our customers we can de-risk it for our customers and that's my focus to make sure they're happy with the proposal we put together to take them on this journey together thank you we've probably got time for one last very quick question and it's around um competitive advantage so how can i decarbonize for a competitive advantage who would like to take that first might hop on that with a quick snappy statement that says if you don't decarbonise, you're going to be at a disadvantage more than anything. It's keeping up with the Joneses at the moment. Um, there's certainly a lot the of companies coming of the out. Customer and, and, and the customer's customer, as you were sort of referring to earlier around you know, carrying yeah. through the supply chain. Yeah, I mean, I think if we'd wanted to stand still and just not do it, there'd be some seriously tough customer questions coming our way. Um, you know, in the end, a lot of us affected by public procurement as well. So anything coming from the government is also going to, you know, have more and more questions asked about this alongside biodiversity and social value and all the other things they like to ask. And that ends up in, you know, commercial contracts, 
fairly quickly nowadays and with the UN sustainable development goals that you know as much business goals as government ones um and you know just the general awareness I think of people I, I think the public is much more educated uh, plastics was a bit of a sometimes say a gateway drug to environmental topics for the public and you know it went from plastics to carbon and now biodiversity is a huge kind of sort of water cooler conversation which just wasn't the case five years ago and I just think there's a, a general pressure from all angles be it an investor government customer to be doing this and actually yes you can get competitive advantage but you also you're going to lose out if you don't so it kind of it's a kind of you're getting squeezed both ways and we've come to um come to our time but i think we've probably um we can probably get away with um just a minute from each of you to to kind of summarize your thoughts and uh, i guess signpost where to start if uh, anyone needs that support who would like to go first i can if that's okay olivia uh, for, for me uh, just echo uh, the conversation today. I think it's been really productive and hopefully stimulated some thought within our manufacturers about how this is really uh, relative and, and appropriate for your business. It's not just something to consider for 2030, it's something today that can give you an advantage. Or as um, Olivia just said then, the dreaded brown penalty, which is a negative uh, aspect of what will happen if you don't adopt this so if you, if, you, if you need to comply anyway, why not be an early adopter? And if you don't have the skills in-house, reach out for a third party. There's a the full marketplace out there and it's full of um, reputable companies that may be able to help and hold your hand through this process. Yeah, for me, I'd just say there's three themes, I think, to what John and I have spoken about today. Firstly, data, data, data. You know, you do need to measure this stuff to make the right decisions. Also that it's totally possible to do. There's so many options out there, but you need to personalize those options. It, it's about them being the right ones for you, not just, you know, the standard, oh, well, let's just do X, Y, Z, because that'll work. You don't know until you've measured it, until you've taken that strategic look exactly what you need. Thank you, Olivia and John, for your time and for sharing some fascinating ideas on how our listeners can advance their sustainability strategy and thank you to everyone for providing questions for the discussion and for joining us to listen watch out for our next podcast and why not subscribe via your podcast platform of choice to be notified when those are published on behalf of all of us at the manufacturer i'm stuart biddle thank you and goodbye